in and of itself, those are pretty compelling requirements, but that will only ever get you to the bare minimum required for accessibility. So if it's purely a compliance argument I'm making for a business case, you will only ever do the bare minimum that you're required to do. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have with me Tim Springer. Tim is in compliance, but not in the kind of compliance that you and I typically visit about. It's digital accessibility. It's a fascinating area that he is going to explore with us and hopefully share some of his insights that we may be able to take into the broader compliance world. So, Tim, that incredibly long-winded introduction. First of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. For sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, could you tell us your professional background? So I have a a long and storied professional background. I'm a computer science background. So I started building websites when I was about 16 years old. This would have been back in the early days of the internet. Did that for a while. Went to school at Stanford, got a degree in computer science, stopped out of school, started this company, which is a digital accessibility company called Level Access. I've been building that company for the last 23 years or so and a bunch of different stops along the way, but got into this area of digital accessibility as it had an intersection between the web development side of what I did, the technology side of what I did and what I was interested in, and the social impact side of what we were interested in as well, and got into it in sort of this roundabout kind of fashion, which uh, we can talk about a little bit later on if it's interesting. Didn't come here because I was like, oh, I should really be in accessibility, just sort of found my way into the industry and have found it to be quite an interesting spot. What's your current role, Tim? So I'm the CEO of Level Access. And so as the CEO, do all sorts of technology company CEO stuff, including managing the business as a whole, but also providing sort of foresight into where we think the industry is going to go. And in particular, my background is I'm a domain expert in the technology side and the digital accessibility side. So it can give you a good kind of combination of what it means from a business perspective to implement these accessibility requirements for people with disabilities, as well as what it, what it practically means when you get into the actual coding level as well. So Tim, my mother was a special education teacher starting in the 60s. That's awesome. So I've been around kids that had learning disabilities, but they also had access disabilities. So it could be movement. It could be using their hands. It could be blindness, it could be deafness, or it could be developmental capabilities. And so I was really intrigued to see the work you and your team have done. But I wanted to start with, I guess it's what led to the founding of it, but I always like to ask either what need did you see or perhaps what market opportunity did you see which led you down this path? Sure. So what led to the founding of Level Access? was this sort of roundabout story. But essentially what it was is we had a group of people that were really interested in starting a company in the technology space. And this was around 1999. We had some fits and starts and did some various different things. But at one point, one of the guys that was on the founding team was a guy that's in a wheelchair. And 
he was trying to get into certain museums in Europe. And his comment at the time was like, oh, it was really difficult for me to figure out what museums I could go into. It would be great if I could get some information on that. It would be great if I could get a website that I could go to. And that problem is a problem called accessible travel, where people with disabilities are trying to figure out what places are accessible to them. But all we heard was website. And we said, oh, there should be a website for that. There should be a website you could go to, kind of like a Yelp for people with disabilities that tells you what's accessible. So we built that website. And from the time we came up with that idea to the time we launched it, what was an unfunded space or a space that had no competitors became this big, complicated space with a lot of competitors. We basically took a step back and we were like, time out. Like, that's probably not the best business idea. And instead of, instead of pursuing this, we should try something else, which you would now call a pivot. And essentially what we said to ourselves is, what is the thing that we've learned out of this? In addition to what we've learned out of this, what could we be really good at? And what we had learned was this concept that digital accessibility was tough. So we had made this one website accessible and it was a big pain. And so our concept was, well, instead of making this one website accessible, maybe we could do something here. Maybe we could try to make all the sites accessible. And so that's where the idea for level access came from. This idea of, hey, it was difficult for us to make a site accessible. Why don't we try to make all of these sites accessible? And ultimately that's what built the company out of. Why that was a good business idea is because there was a bunch of regulatory requirements at that time, something called Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. And so Section 508 requires the U.S. federal government to buy stuff that's accessible. And so we were like, oh, there's a regulation. That means there's a good market here. Turns out that's not the case. And just because there's a regulation, if the regulation is not enforced, it's not actually a good market, something everyone is probably familiar with that's listening to this. So eventually it, it became basically not just how does digital accessibility work, but how does that enforcement work and why is this an area that actually is a enforced requirement or an enforced law rather than just a law in the books? Tim, you articulated travel accessibility or accessibility. Could I maybe take a step back and ask you, what is digital accessibility? So the easiest way to think about digital accessibility is usability for people with disabilities. And so ultimately what we're trying to see is can a person with a disability get the same benefit or get the same use of a system as a person without a disability? And that is ultimately a subjective measure that is specific to the individuals that are involved. How that is generally translated online is more like ADA for the internet. And so how people think about that is a pretty good analogy for how to think about that is a physical building. So when you build a building, you reserve a certain number of parking spots for people with disabilities. You put ramps of a certain angle into it. You do a bunch of stuff when you build the building so that it can be used or it's accessible to people with disabilities. And if you do that, people with disabilities can use the building and have command of the conveniences of the building. And if you don't do that, they can't use the building. And there's also generally some legal liability associated with that. You will also often see enforcement if you have a building that you built that isn't accessible. That concept applies to digital assets. When you build a digital asset, there are rules that you can follow to ensure that it's usable to people with disabilities. And if you follow those rules, 
it will be usable to people with disabilities. If you don't follow those rules, it will not be usable to people with disabilities, and you will often face legal liability associated with that. You'll see lawsuits uh, against the site, as an example. The concept of digital accessibility, you've talked about the regulatory requirements around this, but I wanted to maybe change to the business case. Do you have those types of discussions with your clients or potential customers on the business case for digital accessibility? If so, is is that something that uh, can go as high as the board of director level? How do you make that business case? There's basically two big categories of reasons that organizations do this, is a better way to say that. And then there's probably some wrapping, wrapping demographic trends that are interesting there as well. And so on one side of the equation, organizations tend to do this based on compulsory requirements. And there are two compulsory requirements that are generally drivers. One is legal requirements. And the way to think about that is if you don't do this, you'll face a lawsuit. And the ADA here in the U.S. is the most prominent example of that. And so the way to think about that is there's a law that requires equivalent access for people with disabilities. And if you don't provide that equivalent access... People with disabilities have the right to pursue lawsuits against you. That's in the U.S. domestic market. At the federal level, there are different laws at the state level. There are different laws outside of the U.S., but generally it's civil rights protections for people with disabilities. So that's one of the arguments from a compliance perspective to do it. Another way to look at the compliance requirements are actually what are called go-to-market requirements, which is to sell a given product, the product needs to be accessible. So as an example, your cell phone falls under a certain set of requirements called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, and it requires that aspects of that cell phone be accessible to people with disabilities to even be able to sell a cell phone in the market. It's a go-to-market requirement. If you don't conform to those requirements, you can't sell it can't sell a cell phone. So those are the two legal requirements or sort of compulsory requirements. Either there's legal liability you face if you don't make it accessible or there are go-to-market requirements. You can't sell a product if it's not accessible. In and of itself, those are pretty compelling requirements, but that will only ever get you to the bare minimum required for accessibility. So if it's purely a compliance argument I'm making for a business case, you will only ever do the bare minimum that you're required to do. And so essentially what we've seen in recent years built on top of that are what we would consider inclusion arguments or inclusion requirements. And really the idea there is modern organizations have brand promises and and sort of build their employee value propositions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And accessibility is pretty clearly aligned with diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly equity and inclusion. And so organizations, we would tell you, rightly want to be seen as implementing accessibility because it allows them to tell a good equity story. It allows them to tell a good inclusion story. And at the end of the day, this will sound Pollyanna-ish, they really do mostly want to do a good thing. People want to do this because it is good. We are not twisting ourselves in knots to tell you why access for people with disabilities is good. It is a fundamentally good thing to do, and people really are drawn to that. And so the way to think about that is the laws will give people the cover to do what they're inclined to do anyways. It'll help them justify the budget allocation, the time allocation to implement this, and to allow them to do something that they would want to do in and of themselves. But sometimes it's difficult to do from a business, business case perspective. Tim, who do you have these discussions with within a corporation or perhaps who should champion 
digital accessibility within the corporate framework? Depends on the organization and ultimately it depends on the industry. But the answer to your question is we typically find that the most success comes from accessibility being taken over by current functions that are already present in the organization rather than creating totally new functions. And typically the groups that work together on accessibility, it's not a single group, are legal compliance and GRC groups. So the people that manage regulatory conformance or legal conformance, that's one big set of stakeholders. And the second big set of stakeholders are the people that own the digital assets. And that tends to be product groups, if you have a product group in a digital technology organization, or a marketing group, if you're looking at a public-facing website. And essentially, the combination of people that are coming together for accessibility are people that know the laws and understand how the laws work, and people that know the technology and own the business outcomes. And the combination of those two are the people that really have to drive at accessibility. An easy way to think about that that tends to work pretty well is it looks a lot like information security. So if you think about information security, you have people that understand technical systems, you have people that understand the domain space, information security, and then you have people that understand the legal ramifications or the compliance ramifications of not conforming to it. And so a team that looks like information security tends to be a team that looks like accessibility as well. Where do you see digital accessibility falling into ESG, if that's something you see at all? Yeah, so you think about ESG, a subset of ESG is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you can kind of argue if they're independent things or dependent things, or whatever, but that's an easy way to think about it. In diversity is, do you actually have a diverse population? It's a factual question. Equity is, are you providing equivalent access for everyone in your organization? And then inclusion is, does everybody have a feeling? So diversity is about facts. Equity is about parity of outcomes. And then inclusion is about feelings at the end of the day. In addition, what we've seen is organizations have now started to add accessibility to that. So there's actually a big memo, executive order memo that came out from the Biden administration on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the federal government. And so we expect accessibility will logically be added to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it makes a lot of sense. I answer your question slightly more concisely. Under ESG, there is this diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect of that, and particularly equity, which is about parity of access to opportunities and inclusion, which is the feeling of being included, are really closely related to accessibility. And so in digital accessibility, if we do our jobs well, we will have provided equity in digital experience, which means the same outcomes are accessible to everyone. And we will provide an inclusive experience, which is an experience that people actually feel good about, that they feel has been built for them. And the result of that will probably be a more diverse population of users that we have, but really our primary objectives are going to be equity and inclusion. So that's how we see it all tying together. Have you had requests or even inquiries to help companies document the accessibility they build into this greater DEI schematic program? 100% we have, and it is part of the evolution of our market or the maturation of our market away from purely a compliance focus into a more mixed focus that includes compliance, but also includes diversity, equity, and inclusion. Said slightly differently, the leading organizations we see in the space, the folks that have been doing this for a long time, are almost 
all at the stage of their maturity where they're like, look, we know we have to do this from a compliance perspective, but it is way more interesting for us to do this from a societal perspective. And the longevity of the programs is strongly correlated with how much this is tied into the diversity, equity, inclusion, because it's just a much stickier program. It aligns much better with what the organization is trying to do if there are really more fundamental reasons that they see themselves implementing it versus, hey, we just got to do this because it's a law and yet another GRC requirement. So as we see organizations mature in this, a marker of maturity is that it's tied much more tightly into their DEI initiatives. It tends not to be something that rolls into them because DEI initiatives tend to be cross functional. And so they're not actually org charted a lot of times, but it does tend to be something that comes up to the level of the chief diversity officer, as an example, and they'll have eyes on it and um, think about this program. The dichotomy you utilized when talking about a strictly legal compliance moving to a broader way to look at this, whether a societal or business case approach, do you see customers actually using tools that Level Access provides as a a proactive business marketing tool, having that accessibility, using that not simply to create a product that's accessible, but even a broader, we are accessible and we believe it to this extent, that type of discussion? 100% you do. And that would align with both what we see from more mature customers, as well as what we would tell you is just a good, effective way to run a program. And so the attitude there is something like this. Hey, look, I got to do it because it's the law. But if I'm going to have to do it, I might as well do it in a way that's good for my users that actually benefits people. And if it actually benefits people, I might as well get credit for it. Like, I am doing something that's good. I might as well tell that story. And that can sound cynical, but it turns out it's very, very healthy and it's a really robust way for the programs to function. So we actually encourage customers to be like, look, you're doing something that is fundamentally good here. And a large portion of the reason you're doing it is because it is fundamentally good and aligns with the kind of organization that you want to be. You should get some credit for it. Like you should tell that story in the public. And so we see that more and more. What's interesting is the reason organizations do that is less about their market facing. This is my personal experience. I don't data on this, but it's less about the market facing story they're trying to tell. It's a lot more about the employee facing story that they're trying to tell. And so a lot of it has to do with showing that the organization is living up to the ideals that they espouse and having employees engage with that because it shows that the organization is true to themselves. And so it has a lot more to do in terms of employer retention and fighting attrition than it does purely in terms of market expansion. Obviously, it is a good thing from a branding perspective as well, but we see that the actual stronger emotional connection and the stronger business case actually has to do with living up to your ideals to your employees. Even the business roundtable and their statement on the purpose of a corporation identified at least five stakeholder groups in every corporation employees, customers, third parties, locales, and of course, shareholders. So it would certainly make logical sense that you could utilize not only the tools you're using, but the messages you want to create to communicate with various stakeholders in an organization in a positive manner like you're suggesting. I think that's 100% the case. This has the benefit of being a true story that is also a very positive story. So it's like we're not twisting ourselves in knots to figure out why this is a good thing that we're doing. So since we have the story, like, let's use it. Let's get it out there. 
it's also tends to be a lot more relatable than people will often think. And that's just because the incidence rate of people with disabilities is much higher than most people expect because the definition of disability is actually a lot broader than most people expect. And so it turns out that a lot more people have personal experience with disability than you would think. And it tends to be a very emotionally laden issue in the right way. And so to the extent that you truly can show you've invested in this, it's important to you, it tends to be resonant with a lot more people than you think across all of the stakeholder groups. Tim, I originally wanted to ask you where you saw digital accessibility down the road in 2025 and beyond from the regulatory perspective. But I think I'd like to broaden that now to a broader corporate perspective, because it seems like to me with the clients you work with, the maturation of your client base and the message that you and your team are putting out there that digital accessibility is even really moving beyond simply a regulatory response to a much broader response. Would that be a fair assessment? That's my belief for sure. And I believe the market data supports that. My expectation is that digital accessibility will be one of the three core digital governance activities that organizations do. And so you have security, you have privacy, and you got accessibility. And that doesn't preclude other industry-specific items that are there, but already we see those as being sort of the three big sets of requirements people think about when they think about digital governance. And so we expect that'll continue to be the case. The broader question then is, well, why is that the case? And so the answer to that is, first off, the legal environment as an underpinning environment on a global basis is there and will continue to firm up. A lot of that is actually driven by this UN treaty vehicle called the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, which is, it's like ratified by like 190 countries or so, the the vast majority of the globe have ratified it. And so this treaty vehicle that the UN put forward almost 20 years ago at this point requires each member state to then go and pass laws like we have here in the US, like the ADA, and then roll those laws down through each of the countries, each of the member states. And so that will happen. Those will continue to be passed and go into enforcement over the next five to 20 years. So the legal framework will be there. And then the second is that the societal awareness, particularly of access issues, social justice issues, but what ultimately we would think about equity and inclusion issues at the end of the day, that's just drastically increased. And that's happening at a time when digital access is becoming the norm for most people working in an organization. So The forced digital transformation of COVID had the benefit of getting everybody aware of how important access to technology was. And so the case that you have to make for digital accessibility is a lot easier. No one is really coming back these days if you say, look, you got to have access to technology to live your full life. People just kind of agree that that's the case now. It's not shocking to most folks. So that's the second area is that societal awareness is there. Then the third area that I think drives it on a long term and why we think it's ultimately a mainstream thing is just demographics. So at a big picture demographic perspective, the mega trends that are happening here is what's called the silver tsunami or the graying of the globe. But basically, people are having fewer children and people are living longer. And if you combine those two trends together, 
it means the population on average is getting older. And the reason you care about that for accessibility is there is a perfect correlation rate between age and the incidence rate of disabilities. And so on average, an older population has more disabilities. And so if you think about all these big trends coming together, the legal frameworks being formalized and continuing to roll, society being aware of this and thinking about equity and inclusion in different ways in a digital environment more than ever before. And then finally, just big picture demographics. Our take is like, look, this is going to be a core part of any discussion that you have for the next 30 years, and it'll be integrated into the fabric of all the technology that is created you know, over that period of time as well. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, level access, or really any of the topics that we've discussed in this podcast, what would be the best place for them to go? Sure. Uh, levelaccess.com is the website. That's probably the best place to start. Under that, we've got a resources area, and that'll give you a lot of the blog posts and content. You can kind of search for stuff. You're always welcome to reach out to me directly. My email is tim.springer at levelaccess. It's pr- pretty simple. You're welcome to email me and just reference a podcast, and I'm more than happy to follow up. Well, and I'm just going to throw in that Tim did not even begin to describe the resources that are available on the Level Access side. I was able to take a pretty deep dive into it to prepare for this podcast. And if you are a compliance officer who's never looked at accessibility, digital accessibility, and you need a place to start, I cannot think of a better place to start than the resources tab on your website. It is a fabulous set of resources. And I wanted to thank you and acknowledge you guys for putting that out there for the greater community. So Tim, we are at the end of our time for this episode, but I greatly enjoyed this and I hope we can continue this conversation. Love it. Thank you, my friend. Talk to you soon.